We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. The now unsealed warrant authorizing the search of Donald Trump's residence last week in Mar-a-Lago indicates the FBI is investigating the former president for possible violations of federal law. One, gathering, losing, or sharing with an unauthorized person information that relates to national defense. And two and three, concealing, destroying, or removing classified documents. We'll talk to Andrew Weissman, former federal prosecutor and general counsel to the FBI about what it all means, and KQED's Marisa Lagos about the political implications. That's coming up right after this. Welcome to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. Former President Donald Trump is in hot water with the Justice Department. We now know that the FBI is investigating the former president for possible violations of the Espionage Act, which is why I'm thrilled to have Andrew Weissman, former federal prosecutor and general counsel to the FBI, on the line with us to dig into the details. Andrew, why don't we start with former Vice President Mike Pence saying today that Republicans should exercise restraint when talking about Mar-a-Lago. And I quote, these attacks on the FBI must stop. Calls to defund the FBI are just as wrong as calls to defund the police. I also want to remind my fellow Republicans we can hold the attorney general accountable for the decision he made without attacking the rank and file law enforcement personnel at the FBI. Is this not the definition of a veiled threat? Um. I, I view this as um, just a sign of just the um, a hold that the former president has on the Republican Party, because Mike Pence's statement is basically dipping his toe in slightly disagreeing with um, Trump's position. But I mean, it's if you're an adult, it's just so <laughs> crazy um, that we're having this discussion. There's literally no evidence of the FBI or the Department of Justice uh, writ large doing anything wrong other than complying with our system of laws and rules in terms of how you get a search warrant and how you effectuate it. But that didn't stop numerous people in the Republican Party immediately jumping to vilify the FBI and um, the Department of Justice uh, and um, doing such things as calling them out in a way that provoked violence. It's very similar to what the former president did on January 6th. And in fact, there have been not just threats, but actual violence. 
So, you know, on the one hand, I commend Mike Pence for putting his toe in the water, but it is so weak. Um, and I should say the same statement. Um, he added, by the way, if I am called to testify in front of the January 6th committee, I will consider it, um, <laughs> which gives you a sense of just how weak this is as as a statement. Oh, my gosh. So so that's Trump's political defense on colorful display this morning. Let's talk about his legal team, Andrew. I understand from The Washington Post he's having a hard time attracting top talent. Could this be an indication they don't want to board a sinking ship? Um, so first, I don't want to denigrate any of the um, – the lawyers who have represented him in, let's say, the special counsel investigation or um, since then. Um, and a, a lot of them are not the so-called A-team, but you can be somebody who doesn't have that sort of outsized reputation, still be ethical and do a very good job. Um, that being said, the um, former president's issue with finding top talent has been an issue for quite some time. This is, I think, a continuation of that problem. Um, and you can understand why, um, if you are a top flight attorney, this is not the assignment that you would be, uh, you know, holding your breath, hoping that you got the call, which, you know, normally is the case when uh, the president or former president asks you to represent them. Um, because, you have a client who won't listen to you and by all accounts is expecting you to do things that are uh, improper. Um, so, you know, this is a former president who famously said that he was looking for lawyers who would emulate Roy Cohn, the disbarred lawyer. Um, and um, his other counsel are Rudy Giuliani, who is his license has been suspended in New York, and he may very well end up being charged in Georgia. Um, his other counsel, Michael Cohen, is a convicted felon. Another counsel is Sidney Powell, who is facing numerous lawsuits based on her false representations um, about election fraud. So the history here is not a good one. And if you are a you know, a lawyer, tier tier A lawyer, you're not sitting there thinking this is something you need to put on your resume. So bring everybody up to speed now. What do we know, what do we not know about the 11 boxes of documents retrieved from Mar-a-Lago? Great question. Um, so what we know is that a judge found that there was probable cause to search for those boxes um, and uh, because he signed the search warrant and in order to sign it, he had to have made the decision that there was probable cause to find that material and that it would be, there was probable cause to believe it would be Mar-a-Lago and that there's probable cause um, to believe that it would be uh, evidentiary of at least three crimes. Uh, and there were three crimes uh, listed in the search warrant, uh, one of them being the Espionage Act, another federal statute governing governing the disclosure of uh, government information, and the third being obstruction of justice. Um, so we know all of that. We also know from the return, that is the document that the FBI gives to the court and to the 
owner of the property searched, which is a, a sort of summary of what was found. We also know, as you mentioned, that there was material that included classified um, material, um, material that was marked secret and material that's marked top secret and top secret um, compartmentalized, which is the sort of highest level of classification. So that's all the things that we know. Um, there's a lot of reporting that about the circumstances of uh, that led up to the search. Um, but what we, I think, most importantly don't know, um, in spite of Donald Trump uh, tweeting out various what I'll call defenses du jour, is we still don't know from the former president why he took the documents, why he didn't return all of them, why he apparently told the Department of Justice that he had returned everything marked classified, and what he was planning on doing or did do with these documents. To me, those are the key questions that we still don't have an answer to. And we have a lot of distractions, which I think the former president is very good at trying to raise other issues that distract from those key questions. And, you know, like you're suggesting there, you know, the, the Justice Department had tried asking nicely before this. Absolutely. So when we first heard about the search, um, I remember being asked about this and saying, it has to be the case that somebody as careful um, as Merrick Garland had to have really had a good answer for why he went to a search warrant and didn't try and do this through voluntary disclosure or a subpoena. Normally, that is what you try to do when in a criminal investigation, when you're trying to get documents, you can issue a subpoena and that requires the person to turn them over to you. You use a search warrant and not a subpoena where you don't think that the person is going to comply with a subpoena. So famously, we in the special counsel used a search warrant to search Paul Manafort's home because it was clear to us that he was going to obstruct justice um, if he got a subpoena and either lie to us or start destroying documents or both. Um, and so we proceeded by search warrant. Um, and so that is, in fact, what the reporting is, is that before the search was done, that there was a very lengthy period where the Department of Justice was negotiating with uh, Donald Trump and his lawyers to try and get these documents back up to and including his lawyers apparently making a written rep representation in June of this year that they had returned all of the documents that bore classification markings. And we know from the search that was done that that representation was, to put it most charitably, incorrect, and to put it least charitably, perjury. You know, the, the government initially treated Trump with kid gloves uh, when he took government property including classified documents with him, after he left office. Uh, do you take issue with the attorney general for just letting that slide for so long? It's It's been a while since Trump left the White House. Well, I, um, I have certainly been critical of the Department of Justice, uh, and, and I wrote a New York Times op-ed about 
um, what I thought was um, the slowness of the department's investigation with respect to January 6th and sort of the wrong approach that I thought they were taking, which was to really spend all of their time and energy, or I shouldn't say all, most of their time and energy focusing on the people who actually physically attacked the Capitol on January 6th. That's obviously very important, and I think the department's done a really good job on that, but I was uh, I thought that they should have taken the approach um, of the January 6th committee, which was really looking at this holistically of all the various aspects of what Donald Trump was up to, uh, the state elector uh, pressuring the fake electors, the pressure on Mike Pence, um, the effort to change the leadership of the Department of Justice so they would falsely claim there was a fraud investigation, I mean, a whole slew of things that didn't appear to be under investigation um, with alacrity. Um, uh, let me say two things. One, I do think that at least now, if you just look at where we are now, I think that the department does seem to have its um, foot on the gas and is proceeding quickly. I also think that this search warrant shows that Merrick Garland has the backbone that is necessary to a case like this. And let me just stress that for a moment because oh. <laughs> I've worked on high profile I'll, I'll cases. I'll let you stress that for a moment in a moment. We're talking to Andrew Weissman, professor of practice with the Center on the Administration of Criminal Law at New York University School of Law, also a fe former federal prosecutor and general counsel to the FBI. We're talking about former President Donald Trump and the FBI's investigation into him and documents, classified documents. He's kept at Mar-a-Lago for a number of months at this point. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. The FBI is investigating former President Donald Trump for possible violations of the espionage. So today on Forum with me, your host, Rachel Myra, we are talking about what this all means and what the political implications are as we head into November. With us today, we've got Andrew Weissman, who is a former federal prosecutor and general counsel to the FBI. We have KQED's own Marisa Lagos, politics cor uh, correspondent for KQED and co-host of Political Breakdown, which should be on your podcast list if it isn't already. Uh, and we'd like you, the listener, to join us as well. Pick up that phone right now and call us at 866-733-6786. And now that you've 
you've actually picked up the phone. That's 866-733-6786. You can also email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Our handle is KQED Forum, and we've already got questions coming in. One listener writes, as much as I want to see Trump in an orange jumpsuit, I'm kind of just happy that we all got the stuff back. What are the chances there's more hidden that the DOJ doesn't know about? Uh, Andrew, that sounds like a question for you to handle. Sure. Um, so um, just to, to finish on my last point, and then I'm going to quickly go to the, the question, which is um, Merrick Garland showing that he has backbone is really necessary in a high profile case where there are all sorts of public pressures and uh, I've seen that sort of over and over again, um, that that is the sort of absolute necessary factor here for successful resolution, which whatever way that goes, um, that he has the fortitude to do it. Um, the um, getting the documents back, um, that is, I'm sure, the first and uh, first mission that the Department of Justice had, which was absolutely making sure that a top secret compartmentalized information was not out in the wild and was back where it's supposed to be. What I am confident they are doing now is making sure that they actually have everything um, and that there's nothing left and also trying to figure out if anything was done with the material that they have. In other words, was it disseminated in some way? Those are very complicated tasks. Um, there have been reports that they're fingerprinting uh, all of the documents. I'm sure they're looking to see who touched them so they can interview people. I'm, they're looking at Mar-a-Lago surveillance tapes because they want to want to see um, what was done with these documents. So um, that is, I think, a hugely important mission and probably the number one priority um, of the intelligence community. Um, Marisa, any thoughts here? Well, I mean, he knows better than I do about how the National Archives and the DOJ track this stuff. But I mean, it seems pretty clear. We're talking about a four year you know, administration and there are millions of documents. They knew these were missing. Right. And so I think um, it, it would surprise me if there was more out there. But I, I mean, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a FBI investigator. <laughs> Uh, so it would also be very yeah. stupid, right, at this point, because you already see what's on that search warrant and, you know, the ways that the FBI appears to have tried to get this through subpoenas and other means before going forward with it. Um, so I think it would also be surprising if they left something behind that, you know, they still wanted. <laughs> right. Uh, including, I don't know, the, the, the codes to, to a nuclear send off. They change those yeah. all the time, though. I, I would I would have to believe. I, so here's a question, Andrew. Like, if there is, we we keep hearing about possibly something involving our our nuclear strategy uh, in D.C. Uh, in these pages. What what would that be if it's not the codes? And why would we care if it's not the codes? So I don't think um, the story uh, that that referenced nuclear um, information, I, I was referencing the codes because the codes can be changed. Um, I think it had to do with nuclear capabilities. Um, and um, it was very unclear whether it was talking about our nuclear capabilities or what we know about nuclear capabilities of foreign countries. 
in both situations, um, the information that would be marked top secret compartmentalized would be, by definition, is something that if released would cause significant harm to the national security interests of the United States and um, and would be something that would be extremely valuable to our adversaries. Which I think, yeah. Rachel, is what undercuts some of the Republican response saying, oh, this is, you know, two-year-old documents. What what could possibly be in them? Um, I'm sure there's plenty, right, that, that remains relevant regardless of whether it's a few years old. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think this is one where, you know, um, we hear uh, people like Donald Trump and Lindsey Graham saying, gee, if we only had the underlying affidavit that the FBI submitted to the court that laid out all the evidence – um, that would be really uh, critical here. That's I actually think that's the last thing they want. Um, I I think that um, if one were to read that, I think we all would have our jaws dropping on the nature of the information and the evidence of obstruction and lies that were told. Um, I don't think we're going to be seeing that anytime soon, precisely because, as the government has said, in opposing its disclosure, that at least for the moment, it would reveal um, an ongoing criminal investigation um, and endanger witnesses. Um, So um, I think that's something where um, there's no reason to think that what the government is representing is in any way false or inaccurate. One listener writes, I have yet to hear anyone ask exactly what rationale or justification the former president would care to offer as to exactly why he needed those papers at home. All of the discussion is only concerned whether they were officially classified or not, but nothing about what he planned to do with them. Um, You know, Marisa, it just strikes me that this is a political story, whether whether Merrick Garland wants it to be or not. Right. As as is most things relating to Donald Trump and things that Merrick Garland has been involved in that he probably wants none of it to do with politics. I mean, you know, on that question, I think um, if you read the sort of historic reporting by folks like Maggie Haberman, who have followed the president for a long time, this really does fit into, you know, a pattern with him that predates his presidency. He seems to have never really had... A desire to retain documentation of his business dealings or other things. You know, there's those photos uh, Haberman put out of things being flushed down the toilet in the White House. Um, and then his, you know, shifting excuses as to why he had these things, um, you know, this idea that he had a standing order to sort of declassify anything he took out of the White, uh, the Oval Office. Um, it doesn't really all add up, right? Because he was going to a residence in the White House. Um, it, it, you know, and, and I think, again, our other guests can talk to this more clearly, but just because, you know, you're not, you can't just wave a wand and declassify things. Even as president, you, I think there's a process involved and, and there's a lot of people and sign off. Um, so why did Trump want it? I don't, I don't know. Um, some of the reporting has indicated that it might have included things, including letters from Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, um, that Trump apparently told people, you know, these aren't government documents. These belong to me. They were addressed to me. And so it seems like some of it might have to do with just things he wanted to keep out of sentimentality. <laughs> sentimentality. And and yet, Andrew, it, it bears pointing out that, you know, even at the most mundane job, if you leave with a stapler after you are no longer employed at a company, 
that's technically theft. And in the case of the White House, uh, it's also, uh, you know, a violation of federal law. Yeah. So um, if you asked um, any uh, federal official when they left, what did they take with them? And you could ask me that. And the answer is nothing. Um, You know, I worked in the special counsel uh, office for 22 months. And sure, I would have loved to take notes and all sorts of things um, uh, for a whole variety of reasons. I didn't take a single thing. Why? Because those documents don't belong to an individual. They belong to the public. Um, These are government documents. So there's a statute, 18 U.S.C. 641, um, which is a criminal statute that says you cannot convert government property, which at the very least, at the very least, is what um, the former president um, has done. Um, whether and that has nothing to do with whether the information is classified or not. And then the one thing I'd like to maybe just push back a little on is that there may be things that the president took that were, although improper, that were uh, you know less important, like um, you know the letter from Obama to him. Now those are that's of historical importance and it right. belongs in the National Archives, but that's not the kind of thing that you bring a a sort of, it's not a federal crime. I couldn't imagine that the Department of Justice would say for something that mundane, yes, it has to be retrieved. Yes, it has to be kept in the historical record. But that's not the kind of thing that you do a search of the uh, former president's home for the first time in history. Um, It is the recovery of things marked top secret, compartmentalized, um, that are going to be the reason that animated somebody as serious and as careful um, as Merrick Garland and his his deputy attorney general, Lisa Monaco, uh, to do this. And I I really think that that what made this, I think, a call that they had to make was a concern over the national security of the United States. Right. Because to Andrew's point, you know, one of the sort of shifting defenses was, well, Obama took millions of documents. Well, most presidents do because they're cleared by the National Archives. Um, Every presidential library has things like the letter that Andrew's talking about. Right. Those are things. But they still belong to the government, even if they're in the Reagan library. The clearance of the National Archives, not over the objections of the National Archives. Now, I I want to just to be clear, it's not it's not even. It's not even with the clearance of the National Archive. The National Archive is the one that creates the presidential library. So Obama did not personally take millions of documents. Those documents, as the National Archives um, actually came out and when this when that false defense was raised, they actually issued a press release saying that's false. We took those documents from the White House and it was as required. And then we used those to establish the presidential library. So it's not like they just authorized um, the former president to hold them. They actually take custody of that. Now, I, I want to let our listeners jump in here because we could easily go to the end of the hour just talking between the three of us. Why don't we talk to Rob in Temecula? Yeah, hi. Are you there? I'm here. Yes, hi. So I hear all this talk about the top secret compartmentalized information that Trump had at Mar-a-Lago. And from what I understand, you have to go into a vault just to view this stuff. How does the president walk out of that vault with boxes full of this information? Good question. Yeah. Andrew? 
So if you're somebody like me, so I was the general counsel of the FBI, for me to see top secret compartmentalized information, and what that means, by the way, is that although I had top secret clearance, um, there's certain things that are top secret that you have to actually get special permission to see. And that's that's the compartment. And you have to be what's called read into it. Um, and um, you'd have to be in a skiff, which is a particular, a particular location to see it. Um, when you're the president of the United States, that can happen in the White House. Um, and it is also true that the president does have the power to declassify things. It's hard to imagine that the president would declassify documents that were about nuclear capabilities. But how could he do it? If you have a, a president who has the ability to see these things in the White House itself, um, and there appears to be a lack of diligence in terms of complying with the law and the rules, then he clearly was able to just put it in boxes and get movers to take it down to Mar-a-Lago. I can, I can assure you that the Department of Justice has already looked at exactly how this mechanically made its way down to Mar-a-Lago and interviewed the people who were um, sort of boxing things up and shipping it down there um, so that they can essentially do a chain of custody from the moment that the uh, former president left the White House to the time that they recovered the documents in the search and try and fill that in as much as possible. Great question, Rob. Thank you for asking that. Let's talk to Lewis in Saratoga. Hi. Um, I, my question was regarding um, when do you start to treat this kind of like how you deal with, with a mob? Because it just seems like the way that Trump operates with insinuations and, and uh, hoarding of data for, you know, it almost seems like uh, not maybe not blackmail, but favors and things like that. I mean, how do you how do you treat this case differently than a standard documents or data case? Because it seems like we're kind of focused on one aspect, but we have to treat it like 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 he's a, a mobster. I mean, it, it does sound like we're talking about somebody who's who who might have, you know, uh, kept this kept these documents so that he could fence them later. I mean, it it, it kind of comes off that way. I don't know if our lawyer is going to make that kind of speculation. <laughs> but we can, Rachel. No, but I mean, I think this speaks, though, to the sort of dual tracks here. Like there there's a political conversation and then there's a legal conversation and the legal, you know, investigations are going to be slow. They're going to be exacting. Um, I think the interesting thing about this one in particular is that given how, you know, investigators do proceed, they don't want to be under a timeline. But the truth is, the closer we get to 2024, the more heat there is to either decide not to file charges or to file them early enough so that it doesn't appear to be sort of, you know, messing with the election. Um, and so I think that that is a question for, you know, the Merrick Garland's of the world, uh, the DAs in Georgia. Well, I mean, Andrew, what do you have to say? To, uh, clearly, clear, clearly Merrick Garland has been considering whether this could this investigation could be construed as a political action. We, you know, we're getting awfully close to November. And even though that's, you know, not 2024, but, you know, it could be construed as political. I think um, that's right that it could be construed that way. I think that Merrick Garland has 
made clear in his recent press conferences that he is going to treat the former president in terms of a prosecutorial decision like anyone else. Um, uh, if anything, as you noted, I think that uh, the investigation regarding the documents at Mar-a-Lago, he was treated with kid gloves. Um, I can assure you that if you know anyone else in the government had done this, I think a search would have done been done sooner, and we we would have been you know cuffed and and frog marched um, out because um, it's it's so outrageous. Um, but I think that the the key here is that, um, and I think Merrick Garland is given his background is the right person for this job is. Um, you have to just keep your head down and do the right thing. So if you develop a criminal case against the former president, and it's a case that you would bring against anyone else or and or have brought against other people, um, then you need to proceed. And that's what I think Merrick Garland meant when he kept on saying no one uh, is above the law. And I think it's it's really important, I think, when you're dealing with a former president, because if you recall, when the special counsel investigation was going on, I'm going to stop not... you there, Andrew. Oh, okay. Let's just stop with the idea that no one is above the law. We're talking about what we can expect next from the Justice Department's investigation into President, former President Donald Trump, what we've learned since the FBI's search of his residence in Mar-a-Lago, and analyzing how this could play out politically with Andrew Weissman, former federal prosecutor and general counsel to the FBI, and KQED's Marissa Lagos, politics correspondent and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we'll take your calls and questions after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. What are your questions about the Justice Department's investigation into former President Donald Trump? How do you see the Mar-a-Lago search impacting the midterm elections? We want to get your questions and comments. Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Why don't we talk next to Mike in Redwood City? Hi, Mike. Hi, how are you? Good. What's your question? Uh 
thank you, Mr. Weissman, for everything you're doing. Um, I I just have an observation slash sort of question for everyone here, and, and it's that it seems from the Justice Department's actions and what you cited a few times today, like treating Mr. Trump with kid gloves and so on and so forth, that, you know, your average citizen like myself kind of feels like there truly is two systems of justice in this country, one for the political class and one for your average citizen. And I sort of am fearful that there is this very muddy line between uh, what we say is political and what is um, criminal in terms of these actions that are affecting us deeply as a nation. So I, I hope you guys can speak to some of that. And thank you. Thank you, Mike. I mean, Andrew, that seems like a question for you. And it, it plays into a, a tweet we got from Hannah. Did the DOJ give the former president too much time to return highly sensitive documents? And could this somehow also play into his hands? I, I mean, you know, like how long does it take uh, uh, for the Justice Department to move uh, when you have a case that's this egregious? So um, we don't know the answer to that yet. Um, I know that's not a very satisfying answer, but we, we don't know the timeline yet. Um, I, as I said, I'm, I was critical of the department with respect to the January 6th investigation in terms of its speed. The one thing I would say is I think that the use of kid gloves in trying to get the documents back and the, the negotiation is actually something that if a criminal case is brought is going to really hurt Donald Trump. In other words, um, his claim now that he declassified the documents, well, in the discussions with the department, did he say that before? I highly doubt it because his defense then was, I returned everything. So um, I think that time period where they were negotiating is actually going to be a really good fact for the government if they bring a criminal case um, against the former president, that they they did provide all of these opportunities for him to do the right thing. And he apparently um, not only didn't return things, but um, misrepresented what he had returned. Yeah. And I mean, interestingly, too, you know, there was reporting earlier this or a few days ago that one of Trump's attorneys actually signed a letter in June saying there was no more classified information at Mar-a-Lago, which raises the question, did the lawyer know, you know, did Trump lie to his attorney? Did the attorney know what he was signing? Um, that's pretty uh, risky as a lawyer, right, to do that. Um, but I do think, I mean, again, this is why it is complicated. And clearly, we've seen over the past five years, a real reticence and, and caution, even from democratically appointed attorneys to really go after somebody, which is why I was talking about that timeline before, right? I mean, there's kind of the sweet spot right now, where we're, yes, close to the midterms, but Trump's not on the ballot. Um, and I think politically, you know, how this all turns out, could certainly affect his fortunes, if not for any other reason than if he is facing felony charges in the future in any of these investigations or is, you know, convicted of them, would that bar him from being on the ballot? But like, that's he's, different from well, like whether he will lose unprecedented questions. I think, Andrew, yeah. you said this earlier, like we, this is terra incognita. We've never been here before as a nation. Yeah, this is definitely a first, but you also have to remember we have never had a uh, president with such rampant disrespect for the rule of law 
um, in so many ways, um, including not respecting the peaceful transfer of power. And, um, you know, the report in the New York Times that um, the president, in response to these documents being uh, being at his at his Mar-a-Lago and wanting and the government wanted them back, he said, "What are you talking about? They're mine, not yours." And that I think just completely gets to his mindset, which is that is the way autocrats and kings think, and that is you know to, it's like Louis XIV, which is l'état c'est moi. That's not the way this country works. Um, and this is a real existential crisis for America that we saw, you know, displayed in some of the primaries yesterday about the future of which way we're going to go in terms of being a nation of laws or whether we're going to be slipping into an autocracy. Well, we're getting a lot of calls and comments uh, that are still just chewing on the fact that, you know, that this apparently happened, <laughs> that we're talking about this at all. How, how, how? Um, <laughs> right. But 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 I'd, I'd like to move the conversation forward by uh, by asking uh, Guillermo in San Leandro to join us on the phones. Uh, Guillermo, can you hear us? Yeah, I'm here. Thank you for taking my phone call. My question is, early in his administration, he had a, a uh, meetings with Russia and North Korea. And I wonder whether those, that top high document, the top secret document, was something that he kind of make a deal to exchange or give it away to these nations in exchange for whatever they have on hand, uh, mostly the Russians. So if this is the case, that will be, uh, is Donald Trump going to jail for that or not? Mm, Andrew? So we don't know what the former president was going to do or did do with these documents, whether it's uh, uh, something that he wanted uh, as a sort of a backup um, or he just thought would be useful or, or he was going to monetize them. Um, in some way. And to your list of countries, I think I might add Saudi Arabia um, mm. as another one that if I were in the government, I would at least have some concern over given the administration's relationship and um, their proposal to share uh, nuclear information with that country. Um, so we don't know that. But let me just say, it's not necessary for there to have been those kinds of discussions um, or dissemination by the former president to a foreign adversary for there to be a criminal prosecution. Um, there have been criminal prosecutions in the past, um, most notably uh, General Petraeus and Sandy Berger, um, for... Uh, crimes that, to my mind, look a whole lot less egregious than what happened here. But again, we don't know all the facts yet. But um, the one thing I can say is the Merrick Garland is a former judge. He's going to be carefully considering the facts here and then looking at the Department of Justice's precedents. Who else has been prosecuted under what circumstances? And I think they'll, he will really be trying to make sure that the former president is treated equally. Um, and not given a break. Um, obviously, if there is evidence of dissemination to a foreign adversary, I think that makes it impossible not to go forward with a case um, against the president, but it's not necessary 
to have that in order to bring the case. Marisa, you know, we've we've got about 10 minutes left to go here in this hour. And I, I just want to get to this question of what it might mean uh, for for voters in the next few months. You know, this has been a, an amazing week watching different Republicans position themselves around this kind of unprecedented situation. Uh, but, you know, I kind of wonder whether there's a certain percentage of, of the American electorate that it's just impervious, impervious to shock or shame. There is. Uh, Trump's base seems to be undeterred by this or by really any of the revelations of the last several years. Uh, we saw this with the Liz Cheney results uh, last night in Wyoming where she got trounced by her uh, Trump-backed uh, opponent. But I do think that there's sort of an interesting thing happening. I mean, look, these midterms, you know, are going to determine the balance of Congress, not the White House. And I do think that there's um, a, a segment of Trump's base or, or Trump's base, a segment of the Republican Party that is very much with the former president who might be energized by what's happened. Um, of course, that depends on whether the sort of narrative changes in the coming weeks and months. I think within congressional races on an individual basis, there's certainly going to be places where it plays. But I was just down in Orange County was previous to the Mar-a-Lago raid, but there was certainly plenty of news around January 6th. Those were not the things I saw either the Democratic or Republican candidate talking about or being asked about by voters. They were talking about safety, gun violence, um, gas prices, right? Uh, Sort of bread and butter issues. And so I think really to me what's going to be interesting is how this plays at the margins, both more centrist Republicans who maybe are not per se never Trumpers, but are turned off by this. Um, Speaking of Orange County, I have talked to people who, you know, were in the military, who always voted Republican, who even prior to this have been very turned off by the January 6th investigation and sort of what we've learned in recent months. And so I do think um, that there is a risk, especially in these very purple districts where independent voters could make the difference that this and the myriad of other investigations, because again, we have to be clear, this is one path, but there's also the bigger January 6th probe at the Department of Justice. There's the fact that Congress is going to come back and have more hearings on January 6th. There's the Georgia uh, probe in which Rudy Giuliani is sitting before a grand jury today. Um, I mean, the list goes on. And so I do think that whether we see sort of news come out of any of those, I think could have an impact on the margins. And that's where a lot of these, you know, tight congressional uh, races will play. Andrew, we began this conversation this hour talking about Pence's veiled threat to the FBI and the Justice Department. Gee, that's a nice departmental budget you got there. Shame if anything should happen to it. Do you think there's any risk of anything happening (laughs) to their budgets uh, if and as they pursue, uh, gosh, who knows how many criminal charges here? Um, that I think is going to depend on what happens uh, in the midterms. Um, if the um, you know if there's a, a change in leadership, then um, there can be a lot of interference um, with those matters. Um, and there are very set budgets, and there are set things that you're, you're allowed to do with with budgets, um, but. I think that it would be, I think, even with a change in in control in the midterms, I think it would be very hard um, for the Republicans to cut off funding so much so that these investigations would not go on 
in some form. Um, uh, so I, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Yeah. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in Fermina Kim. Uh, Marisa Lagos, do, do you think that there there is a, a limit to, to what uh, Republican defenders of Donald Trump uh, believe they can do in the coming months? I think it depends on who it is. I mean, clearly there are folks close to him that are almost willing to say or do anything. What's interested me is that you do see some cracks appearing. You guys discussed at the top of the hour, the Mike Pence, very mealy mouth, sort of minor, you know, wading into that quite a little bit. Um, but more what what struck me was I saw a clip of uh, Sean Hannity interviewing Ron DeSantis, Florida governor, who is in most sort of Republican polls, number two after Trump, in terms of Republican voters um, wanting him for a nomination for a presidential run. And he was pushing back very hard against this idea that it was a raid he was talking about it being a lawfully executed search that was approved by a judge. And it got pretty heated. And I think that that in itself just shows the really tough position that folks who maybe, you know, want to ally themselves with Trump. I mean, this is not the only way DeSantis is kind of talking out of both sides because he also won't talk about whether he thinks the election was stolen, but is supporting a lot of folks uh, who who say it is. Um, But I do think that that is going to make it more challenging. I think these attacks on law enforcement in particular put a lot of Republicans Republicans in a tough position, especially ones who have been running on a sort of reaction to the the Democrats, you know, so-called defund the police movement. And so I, I think it's going to continue to really plague, um, especially candidates, again, in tough races where they're not it's not Wyoming. Right. That was a very clear cut choice for voters in a state like that. But go to David Valadeo's seat in the Central Valley. You know, he's only one of Two of the 10 folks who voted uh, for impeachment, Republicans who voted for impeachment, only Valadeo and one other congressman made it through their primary or decided not to run. Uh, So I think that for somebody like him, um, if if his constituents are asking these questions, it will put him in a tough spot. Chris writes, what recent prosecutorial model will the DOJ draw on for the Espionage Act violations? The shadow brokers leak comes to mind. Is that in play? You'll have to explain this for us, Andrew. (laughs) Second, what role will the two uh, Pats play here, Cipollini and uh, Philbin? Uh, Will they be questioned under oath, subpoena, grand jury? How does the investigation proceed? These are great questions, Chris. Um, So the latter is really interesting um, because the two former White House lawyers, um, the reason that you've heard reports that they were um, uh, interviewed and um, I think will be in the grand jury giving testimony in this matter is because they were uh, selected, those two and five other people were selected by President Trump on January 19th. 2021 to be his official representatives in terms of his presidential papers and complying with uh, getting all of those to the National Archives. Um, So they're going to have, they and the other five people are going to have information that I think would be relevant to a criminal case here. Um, And it's uh, the reporting on that is that at least to Patrick Philbin, Uh, the former president refused to give the documents back saying they're mine, not the government's, which is exactly backwards. 
Um, so those could be really interesting witnesses and important ones for the government, as well as the other people um, who were selected by the president to be his representatives. Um, and then I think there are a whole slew of cases, and you can be sure the attorney general has uh, his staff looking at every uh, uh, prior case involving uh, information, government documents, whether classified or not. Um, as I mentioned, the General Petraeus case is one that's relatively recent. Um, that is a case where he was allowed to plead to a misdemeanor. Many of us, including me, I was in the government at the time, thought that that was too lenient. But he but he was prosecuted. Um, Sandy Berger as well. Um, but I think there, there are others, and there'll be a whole compendium. And what we don't know is all of the facts about uh, Donald Trump, so we don't know how to compare it yet to the prior cases. Really quickly here, Marisa, what are you, what are you most curious about in who knows the next few weeks? Well, obviously, if I don't know if any piece of the affidavit could be released, it se that seems unlikely. Um, but again, like, how does the former president continue to try to defend this? We've seen so many shifting explanations, um, you know, looking forward to what's ahead. Oh, my goodness. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Marisa Lagos, KQED's co-host of Political Breakdown, a podcast you really must subscribe to today, and Andrew Weissman, former federal prosecutor and general counsel to the FBI, talking about the FBI's investigation of former President Donald Trump. You've been listening to Forum. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've been your host, Rachel Myro. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.